Hello, fellow griever. This is the Leftover Pieces Suicide Loss Conversations podcast, and I am Melissa, your host. This week, you have found yourself with me for one of my shorter, solo, down-the-rabbit-hole episodes. Here, I take you with me on a journey of sorts, through thoughts in my own griefy mind. Some days, I may tackle topics as if I am in Alice's shoes, slaying the Jabberwocky, and on others, I may end up in my own pool of tears, or I may just go a bit sideways and paint the proverbial roses red, but I always promise an adventure. So let's dive down the rabbit hole and see just what sorts of madness we might discover together. I am glad you have joined me, because while I do know how lonely this grief is, I also believe we needn't be alone. Welcome. Hello, and welcome, fellow grievers. Today, you have reached Season 4, Episode, I think we're at 31, and this is a Down the Rabbit Hole episode, um, as the introduction implied, and I just wanted to take a really quick minute here and update um, those of you on just a couple of quick things that might be new since you were aware here in the Leftover Pieces um, world. Um, Just briefly, the first of the Legacy Book Projects is out and available to buy now. It's called um, Because They Lived, and it is a book telling the um, amazing stories of six children who died much, much, much too soon by suicide, and the stories are told by their moms. And it's a legacy project that the second round is already underway And the third and final round for this year will start in mid-August. So if you're interested in leaving a lasting legacy for your child or you're listening and you have a mother who might be interested in doing that for your sibling, please feel free to direct them to my website to find out all the information. And then the other thing that um, is, is somewhat new that, well, it actually just went live yesterday, so it is new, is I have a Growth and Grief Healing Your Trauma six-session series that I taught live um, the end of last year into the first of this year, and it's now available to um, access, to purchase and access and work at your own pace, and that is available on my website as well on the same page as Uh, the support groups um, under courses and support groups. So those are some new things that I wanted to be sure that you were aware of. And then now I want to go on to talk about my topic for today, which this has been on my list for a very long time. And I'm pretty sure that I have kind of talked about it before in different areas, but I'm not sure if I've taken it on by itself. And that is the topic of the, the suicide prevention And if you're like many of us, to even hear the word suicide prevention, it might make you cringe just a little bit. And because I have found over and over in the suicide loss space that suicide loss survivors, the families and loved ones left behind, 
really have a hard time with suicide prevention and suicide awareness messaging. I even talked about the awareness piece with another mom just yesterday and why the awareness word was hard for her. So I'm going to start with a couple of things on this topic, and I'm going to start by defining these words, which, you know, I, I do that a lot when I'm looking at breaking things down. But if we look at the word prevention, it's quite simply the action of stopping something from happening. So you can see, probably um, like me, that for many of us, the idea that we had the power to stop our loved one um, by ourselves or you know, in and of just by doing a few things feels extremely painful. It feels painful to hear the messaging that all suicides are preventable. Because those of us that live in this world, I think the world of suicide loss where it's touched our families, I think that most of us would say, there's just no way all suicide is preventable because many, many of our loved ones showed no signs. And that doesn't mean there isn't research and there isn't need for conversation, but I'm going to tackle the next word and then I'm going to go on to break this topic down a little bit more. So the other term that's used a lot is awareness, suicide awareness. And you'll sometimes even hear those two put together because I think they don't know quite which one to work use. So you'll hear suicide prevention awareness or suicide, um, you know, somehow those things put together. And awareness by definition is knowing or perceiving and being cognizant of an event or events that are occurring. So by definition, I mean, I guess it would, that would be a campaign that's trying to make people more aware of how prevalent suicide is. And I mean, the bottom line is most suicide awareness campaigns I see are attempting to be suicide prevention campaigns or just using what they feel is a better word, I guess. And, you know, what I would say to that is, you know, words matter deeply, but so does perception because perception becomes our truth. And I'm going to challenge everybody. And as I try to break this down a little bit more and talk about it a little bit more, I'm going to tell you that the terms that I prefer and because that's what a lot of people would say is well if we can't say prevention melissa and we can't say awareness what do we say and i would believe that there's a couple of couple of terms and sure they could be turned into one slightly different but i like the idea of mental health empowerment i also like the idea of having a counter shame culture and that's not necessarily a tagline but i mean that that's what we need to be working towards we need to be working towards a society and a culture that empowers people in their own mental health. And we also need a culture that is counter shame so that there is not shame attached to our mental health in any state that exists in the same as there shouldn't be shame attached to anything with physical ailments. So I think that the focus, in my opinion, needs to be on those two things, breaking down the shame and uplifting the idea of our mental health is important in empowering people to step forward and speak out and have safe places to go to empower themselves in their own mental health journey. Because I think what it comes down to a lot of times is that people feel completely lost and like there is nowhere to go. 
And oftentimes they, they're they afraid that if they step out and say that they're feeling suicidal, not only will they be shamed or uh, dismissed or, you know, some people even get angry when some people talk about the fact that they might like to, you know, that they're thinking of ending their life. So they, they're avoiding all of that, the shame and the stigma, but they also are avoiding the fear for like mandated hospitalization and things like that. And I'm not saying there aren't times that we, that any of us could be in a situation where we should be in a facility for our own safety. But if somebody has the ability to step forward and they feel that they're living in a culture that people are going to embrace the idea of talking about their mental health and that if it's in a bad space, offering us alternatives to care for that, that are not shameful, that are empowering and that feel hopeful, then I feel like those are the steps we have to take. I don't feel like, like I'm looking at right now, I'm looking at a couple of lists that are put out by a national organization and I won't name the organization that has these lists out because none of them are worse than the others. But, you know, like the CDC has things out. NAMI has things out. AFSP does. The National Institute for Mental Health or NMI, NIMH has things out. So, you know, in looking at this one, you know, it's a printable, downloadable thing. It's warning signs of suicide. The behavior listed below maybe some of the signs that someone is thinking about suicide. And it's a chart with a few graphics and and it tells you things to talk about, talks about feelings. It talks about people's behavior changing. And, you know, this doesn't say suicide prevention. It says warning signs of suicide. So in other words, warning signs that somebody may be thinking about suicide. And I think there is a place for messaging like this. Absolutely. We should all be aware of what the warning signs are so that if there is someone in our life that is talking about wanting to die or having a, a great amount of guilt or shame at, at how they're feeling, if they may be feeling sad or depressed, if they feel like they're a burden, if their language is that, you know, if they're, they're expressing feelings of emptiness, hopelessness, no reason to live, right? If they're extremely sad or anxious or they're quick to anger, um, you know, I won't go through all the things they have listed, but they also show, you know, making changing behaviors such as making a plan and withdrawing and mood swings and getting rid of your things, things like this. To me, I've seen this kind of list over and over again. And I think it's just as good of a continued messaging to have this kind of thing out as it is to know the warning signs of a stroke or heart attack, to know the base for people to know basic um, first aid and CPR and see those um, charts out. Those, you know, nobody thinks twice about that. So I think that this is good to have as a companion piece in the health industry because mental health needs to be mainstreamed. But I think these large suicide prevention campaigns sometimes are misguided and can have this mm, CYA checklist of feel to them to a lot of us that are that are listening because we feel like a lot of times that they're just putting this message out to kind of you know cover their behind from a liability standpoint and it really is missing the mark it's not going deep enough that's my problem with a lot of the campaigns is they want to just throw them out once a year or they want to make a big push, you know, um, around something that's going on, but it's not getting to the heart 
of the mental health empowerment and counter shame culture that I think is the bigger piece. And I don't have all the answers. And this is just me, you know, down a rabbit hole talking about this a little bit because it is something that moms talk about a lot. And so, you know, one of the things I did when I was preparing to do this episode was I thought about making sure I had done my due diligence and at least researching this messaging a little bit from the devil's advocate position, I wanted to challenge myself because quite honestly, I land on the side that a lot of these prevention things just honestly do make me cringe. Also, they make they they activate guilt and shame in me because of the way they speak because of the wording. And so I thought, you know, let me let me just for a minute do a little research and see if and, and I didn't spend just a minute, I spent several and you know, I spent the better part of a an hour or two doing some research and reading a bunch of different articles. And because what I wanted to do was see is the messaging helping is this suicide prevention messaging that's out preventing suicides? Because if it is, if it really is working and is doing its job, then I need to suck it up and not personalize it, right? And that's just me talking plain. You all know that I don't sugarcoat things very well. But if it's helping, if it's really doing its job, then myself as a sensitive mother who's lost her child to suicide needs to consider that if it is. So what I found and it's not definitive. This is just my podcast with my opinion. But what I found was the strongest effect that they have found so far seems to be in the 25 to 30 year old range and up. So we will just say for for uh, this case, around the age of 30 to 64. That's how broad the, the range is they have shown it to be not as effective for younger and not as effective for older. And so if you fall between 30 and 65, the suicide prevention messaging seems to have shown a downturn in suicide. What I had a hard time finding was the empirical proof of that, like how they came up with the statistics. I read similar statistics in several of the articles that I read, you know, and they were medical articles. Some of them were almost, you know, too medical, like they were medical thesis and different things like that. Here's one of the other problems. There's not a lot of research that is definitive that's being done. There's more and more being done now. Less results are out because the studies are still going on because suicide has been as we know, especially among younger people, on the steady increase now for the last decade and, you know, maybe the last couple, but we've seen a big upswing in this last decade. And that research is going to probably take longer to come out. And, you know, so I do support anything that promotes conversation around a topic that's stigmatized because, it's just like if we were talking about something hard in any field, the more you're willing to have those conversations and bring knowledge to the table and dialogue about it, the less scary it becomes and therefore the more mainstream and the less stigmatized and shameful it becomes. So 
while it's easy to sit in a place to say that suicide prevention messaging needs to go away because it's it's blaming I don't want every single messaging to go away because we need to be more aware of this. We just need to be willing as survivors to step out more of our comfort zone, which is really hard to do, by the way, and take the helm and lead by example and teach, teach what this messaging does, not only to those of us that are surviving a suicide loss, but for our vulnerable teenagers and younger children, young adult children that are hearing it. We need to be able to educate from a different side of the fence because many of these campaigns are headed up by most of them headed up by figureheads that have credentials on paper, but don't have any experience sometimes with traumatic loss at all. Probably not with close loss and most of them not with suicide. They're just you know, educated clinicians, if you will. And I think bringing the human element to these is sometimes what's missing. And probably a lot of times because do we have a lot of bandwidth as a suicide loss survivor, right? We have to think about that. So it's, it's difficult. Perception matters. Words matter. And I talk about those kind of things a lot. We have to choose our words. They're so many choices of words in the English language that we don't have to stick with harmful messages. We don't have to use harmful language. And, you know, people need to be mentally empowered. They need to feel hope. They need to be able to be help seeking when they need it. And we need, we need a culture that's more resilient and more kind And I know how that sounds, again, really good words, right, Melissa? But it means we have to do something. And that's hard, right? Because people don't know where to start. And so having conversations, changing the way people talk about things, um, signing up to volunteer for an organization or starting an effort in your own small area, your own, you know, if you still have kids in school, those things can get someone involved that knows what the messaging should be and how we can talk more compassionately and how we can truly potentially reach people that are suicidal. And this is kind of, I know it took me a long time to get here, but now that I'm thinking about it, this was where I started in the beginning with the idea of mental health empowerment. I think the thing that we have to do the most is exactly that have a counter shame culture and empower people so that they can step forward before they're in crisis. So they can say I'm headed to a crisis and that could mean suicidal thoughts. And that could mean that could become a reaction or of reality because I react to my situation getting worse. So if people can step forward before they're in crisis and get help because they feel empowered and they don't feel shamed then we'll see less suicide in in the all of these people that we see ending their life that we saw no signs from. That doesn't mean we shouldn't still be aware because there are definitely signs at times and there are definitely things that we can do if someone in our life is showing those signs. And the, the smallest thing is not just being direct. That's kind of one of the biggest things you can do is, you know, ask them. If they're thinking about killing themselves, and I know that sounds like harsh messaging, are you thinking about suicide or have you thought about ending your life? 
That's hard to say. But if people don't learn to say it, then the people that are that need to hear it don't feel safe enough to say it's that bad. If you just say, are you okay? Or how are you feeling? Or if you were feeling really bad, you'd let me know, right? A lot of people think no, because that's dismissive language. It makes people feel like, well, if it's really bad, I don't know what to do with it, which is how a lot of people treat us as grievers. So I'm flipping that around of if we have to be brave enough to lean into hard things, period, right? Whether that's leaning into someone that needs us that's grieving, or whether that's leaning into someone that's having a hard time and needs us to just be there and listen and not be judgmental. And if they need help, again, be there and listen and not be judgmental and help direct them without all of the shame and stigma. So I know there was no answer here. I know I didn't get to the root of any problem. I didn't fix anything. But I just wanted to kind of tackle this topic a little bit. And since I am talking to mostly people that have lost someone by suicide, most of you that are listening are missing your person the same as I am. I guess my challenge in this whole discussion about suicide prevention is to consider empowering yourself to change your language and change your own messaging to be less activating and more educating and more empowering. So again, you know, you don't have to use my words, but I really like the thought of mental health empowerment and promoting a counter shame culture where mental health and um, vulnerability is concerned, you know, and promoting kindness you know, promoting kindness, promoting inclusivity, all of these things go a very long way towards ultimately preventing suicide without it being a message of blame, which is where the prevention messaging tends to fall, right? It's not counter shame, it's pro blame. And that's what I want to see changed. I want to see messaging still out there. I just want to see it more accurate. The same as we want to see media start reporting more more compassionately with sensitive language and all of those things. So the only way that change happens is it takes time. And I'm going to say it again. And I know you guys hear me use this phrase a lot, but consistent, persistent messaging consistently, persistently having conversations and staying the course and not letting up because over time, it it has a ripple effect, it'll make a difference. And we need the ripple effect to not be negative anymore, we need to turn it on its head. And, And I have a very, very dear friend who also lost her child to suicide. She's actually one of the authors in that new book I talked about at the beginning of this podcast. And she has a hashtag, flip the culture. And um, I think her other hashtag is um, be kind, dare to be kind. And it's because it's so true. We have, and I, that's, those are the things I've just talked about here, right? We have to be kind and we need to flip the culture. We need to flip the, the way that people are thinking about mental health and suicide and grief and trauma and all of these things and stop um, PCing them up, stop um, backing away. We have to start leaning in with care and kindness and consistency. 
So with all of that, with my ramblings for today, I will end today's uh, rabbit hole episode. I know I've uh, been on a bit of a hiatus with these and for a couple of sessions now I've been telling you guys I'm coming back with a vengeance, but I really am. Expect to see um, podcasts um, coming back weekly again and, you know, trying to alternate my episodes with guest-based episodes and then uh, down the rabbit hole episodes. And, you know, it may take another another month, but by the time I'm launching season five, um, this fall, I expect to be fully back in the swing of every week. In the meantime, you know, you're going to get at least two or three episodes a month, and I will do my best to get back into the weekly swing of things. There's some exciting, helpful, I hope, and hopeful things on the horizon. And I appreciate you listening. As always, please reach out if you have suggestions, comments, just want to connect or if you know somebody who would like to be a guest on the podcast. Until then, my friends, fellow grievers, you're in my heart, and we'll talk soon. So we'll conclude here for today. But I just wanted to say a few things before you go. If you're new to the podcast and have not listened to the very first episode called Intro Episode Start Here, all the way back at the beginning of season one, I would encourage you to do so so that you know what to expect from the leftover pieces, because I do have several different styles of episodes that I record and we do release weekly, almost all of the time. So I hope that you will come back often to join us in this community of suicide loss survivors. If you have not already, also, I would encourage you to check out the leftoverpieces.com where you can find and have access to all of the things that I currently offer. Some of those things are online Zoom support groups, links to my books, educational opportunities that I'm adding all the time, as well as different downloadables and resources for all suicide loss survivors. And if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, or you'd just like to connect with me for any other reason, you can do it through the website as well. So until next time, I just want to remind you that I know how lonely this grief is, but you don't have to be alone. Talk soon.